I sometimes find myself in a weird situation, personally, trying to ascertain almost the same question I asked of you this morning, where are you? I find myself being led in different directions at different times to operate in different levels of giftedness and calling. I sometimes feel apostolic, which really, really bothers me and humbles me. Sometimes I feel prophetic, which is kind of scary at times. Other times I'm just preaching a word, and I try to try to understand how those things converge at times as you get older in the faith and more seasoned in the faith. I think obedience leads you to this place of trying to, you know, understand new waters. Uh, but I do see, I do, having said all of that, I see some things happening in, in our culture today that are noteworthy. Uh, trends, I don't study trends. I don't live my life in reaction to trends, but I also understand that they're realities. And there is a trend in our culture, in our country right now, to where most churches are about half, half attended uh, as they were at, at a level a year and a half, two years ago. Some more, some less. Fewer people are coming to church as a result uh, of, of what we've been through the past year and a half, two years. That's a, that's a fact. Now, they're online, but they're not physically in a sanctuary. All right, that's a, that's a reality. Some of these people are not coming back for various reasons. And that, too, is a reality. And why is that? Well, in part, I think some people were kind of nominal to begin with. Others had a habit of going to church. The habit was broken. I don't know. There could be all kinds of things that, that, that weigh into a decision like that. At the end of the day, it does say Hebrews 10 and 25, don't forsake this assembly as some are in the habit of doing. So I'm obviously I'm preaching to the choir. But the reality is it's, there's a cultural dynamic in play here where most, um, most churches are experiencing about half the attendance they normally would. This one a little bit higher than that. But nonetheless, that's the trend, in part because there are many, many voices vying for our attention. The evangelical church is being courted by many, many voices. The frequency of those voices and the volume of these voices, we determine. But nonetheless, these voices, as I would probably say, a scheme of the darkness at the end of the day, are seeking to divide us. Now, we have to be the gatekeepers we cannot allow a carnal, a, a, a voice that is carnal in its origin vie for our, not only our attention. We think those voices want our attention. We think those voices want our mind. We think, we know those voices want our pocketbook, but in reality, what those voices really want are our hearts. And if those hearts can be pitted against one another, all the more reason to tune in and listen. And this has been happening subtly, and this is the way change comes about, subtly. If this happened overnight, it would be so easy to ascertain, to be obvious, to discern it. Media is a big part of that, but you can get way out of whack on how you're going to understand all of that. But the fact of the matter is, we are a culture that is tuned into highly repetitive, highly potent, messages and voices that if we're not careful will eventually dilute the voice of God. 
And that truly is the goal. We'll pay for it in the end. The younger generation will pay for it huge in the end. But we have to use discernment. Now, it dilutes the word of God because we fail to understand that the word of God isn't rooted in a carnal agenda. It does have an agenda. And that those messages that come from the word, we call them sermons, we call them messages, will they make or break us if we don't hear it every Sunday? Of course not. I would hope not. I would hope we're not that vulnerable and that susceptible to something like that. But over time, when those worldly voices stay loud and repetitive and frequent, they end up diluting the importance of the Word of God. So that having been said, we have to be the right gatekeepers. We have to be gatekeepers of our eyes and and our our lives and our hearts anyway. This is just common sense. So where does that leave me? Well, I'm one who won't deviate from the Word. And I can't be carnal. I have to be spiritual. And I can't have an agenda other than building the kingdom. My agenda cannot be to get you to like me or want to come back or to to find favor with you or to tell you what you want to hear. I have no agenda like that whatsoever. I'm unlike another voice you may hear in the world this week. My voice is to tell you the truth, unbridled, unfettered, as true as I possibly can. And whether you like it or not, I really don't care. That's my job. Okay? So my voice is different than most people's voices. But my voice is greatly diluted. And those who also preach the word, if we marry ourselves to too many other voices too frequently and too, putting too much weight on them, because in the end we'll be disappointed. So I'm going to give you today a message, a sermon from one verse of scripture. And because you're here listening today, And those online are listening, you're going to be at a different place when you hear it. Not everybody's in the same place at the same time. We have different needs, different wants, different levels of maturity, different levels of education, information, openness. Some people may not even be open to a word that's said here today. Whatever the case may be, I know that because what I'm sharing with you is rooted in God's word, I don't have to worry about whether or not it meets you where you are. It's designed to do that. And it's designed to do that even if there were 300 different places everybody was right here today. It would meet every one of those criteria. So to some of you today, I'm going to give you this message. Does that make me special? I sure hope not, because I can't live up to that. But for some of you, it's going to cleanse you. And for others of you, it's going to convict you. And for others of you, it's going to calm you down a little bit, which is great. You may not need that this Sunday, but you may next. For some of you, it's going to clarify something in your life, the will of God, the word of God, something about God, something about you, something about a relationship. It will probably, for many of you, intensify a passion for your life, uh, satisfy an aching heart, maybe soothe and be a balm to a broken heart. It can do all of those things at the same time. It's amazing. It can inspire the tepid, embolden the timid and can usher you to a new place of considering possibilities way beyond your own limitations. It can leave behind confines and self-sufficiency and idiosyncrasies and obsessions and idols. It can cause you to look upward to possibilities 
outward to the hurting and inward for an honest evaluation. That's what I have to offer you. And, and I'm not a media station or a cable channel. I'm not, I'm not a blog. I'm not an article. I'm not a Facebook post. I'm just simply a guy who will not compromise the Word of God. There's your, there's your introduction. So now let's see what the Word says. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Lesson. Seek him first and his righteousness and his kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. Saying it this way, if you're earnestly seeking God, earnestly seeking God and his kingdom, you'll be satisfied. You'll have no real want of something else. Now, you'll get something else, but it's always proportional to your satisfaction with the one who's going to provide it. Be satisfied with the one who provides the blessings in life, and you'll have no want. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these other things that cause you a want will be added unto you. Make him the number one pursuit of your life. Not a vision, not a direction, not a calling, not a ministry, not a career choice, not riches, not anything else. Make the person of Jesus Christ the object of your pursuit. And he will be a rewarder of those who diligently seek them. David had this down, and he gives it to you in one verse, and that one verse will radically change your life and calm you down and correct you and inspire you and soothe you and give you clarity of direction if we just heed, not just hear, the word of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He, he gives me an opportunity and will make me lie down in green tender grass if I let him He'll be your source of reflection in still waters, your source of understanding. You'll live an examined life. Too many people examine their life at the end and regret and wish they had done things different. Those who seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and seek the shepherd don't have to wait to the last hour to examine and correct. They examine and reflect along the way and make adjustments, and they live a fuller, richer, more abundant more satisfying life. They enter eternity with the excitement of continuing such, not being introduced to it for the first time. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He just wants to grab your hand and walk and lead you to where he wants you to go, where you want to go because it's where he wants you to go. He's a leader and he just wants you to follow him. That's all. The greatest leaders are the best followers. And the best followers turn out to be the greatest leaders. Who are you following? And because of that, who are you leading? Very important. Make sure the voices you follow are not rooted in carnality or an agenda outside of the kingdom of God. Let the voice of God be ahead of you as you follow him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you haven't figured it out yet, the world is slightly imperfect, a bit hostile, not altogether everything you want it to be when you want it to be. Now, there's some great things going on in the world. Let's not bash the world. There's some wonderful things, very great things going on. But at the end of the day, we are susceptible in a fallen world to sickness, to strife, to lack, to all of those things. Now, the question is, 
Do we still have an unfulfilled, empty place in our life? Or have we, regardless of the outward situation, sought first the shepherd, now we have no want? Do you live your life from the inside out or the outside in? That is a question you really should have answered before you leave here today. Because if you don't yet have an answer to that question, you're missing the entire point. Are you living from the inside out, rooted in the love of Christ who is dwelling within you as a believer, or are you living from the outside in? Are you living a proactive life or from the outside in a reactive life? Are you listening to the voice of God, a spiritual message, transformative message, with an agenda to build his kingdom, or an outward voice, frequent, loud, prolific, and given far too much respect than it actually deserves? These are the things we've got to think through. It says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Let's take it two words at a time. You prepare. Have you ever stopped to think about this? I mean, I kind of do. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like I do this for a living. It's like, I'm supposed to stop and think about this stuff. God prepares things when it comes to you. Like some of you are praying, you have younger children, you're praying for the future spouse of your child, your daughter, your son. You've acknowledged that God is preparing that other spouse until the, 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 the coming together of meeting one another and falling in love with one another and marrying one another and cutting a covenant together. See, God's a preparer. He, he prepare, he's preparing your future right now. He prepared things in advance right now. He prepared, Ephesians 2 and 10, he, he prepared in advance good works for you to do. He had you in mind. He prepared a world for you to be born into. He prepared your, to have, you to have a mother in your mother's womb in which you were to be born from. He prepared all of that in advance. You had nothing to do with that. You had no way of influencing that in any way, shape, or form. He's a preparer. And he has prepared something in advance for you. And it reveals who he is, what he wants, how he thinks, and what's important to him. And how does he plan? You know, he prepared breakfast for he prepared breakfast for Peter on the seashore so that they, he could ask him three times if he loved him. Some of you and I, we've stood on that very beach where he made breakfast. A resurrected Christ made breakfast. All right, granted, it didn't have a lot of bacon. He prepared himself and the whole concept of the cross, he prepared that in advance of foreknowing our fallenness and sin and your need of a Savior. And he demonstrated his love for you while you were yet a sinner. He died for you, Romans 5 and 8. Notice in the psalm I just read to you, we made a transition. Most people don't notice it. It's right there in front of you. It's in your face. You can't miss it if you're looking for it, but it's there. In the first part of the psalm, he talks to us as though we're sheep. The second part of the psalm, he talks to us as if we're men and women. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, sheep. He leads me beside the still water, sheep. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now he's talking about preparing a meal at a table. We're people now. 
and he's preparing something for you. The animal imagery has gone, and he now wants us to pay attention to the intimate aspects of who he is in our life. You see, he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies because sometimes healing takes courage. Now, this isn't for everybody, but it is for somebody. Sometimes healing takes courage. And you have to face, although you don't want to, you have to face the trauma that's calling the shots in your life. The trauma that has put boundaries around your heart. The trauma that keeps you from being invested in relationships. The trauma that keeps you from trusting others. The trauma that causes you to project, project negative attributes on other people. The trauma that erodes away the trust that you really want to have in life. Sometimes in the presence of your enemies, you have to be aware that there's an enemy there. And oftentimes, it's hurt, it's trauma. 25% of the people listening to this message right here today know exactly what I'm talking about. They've been there. And the trauma, even to this day, can dictate their coming in and their going out, their willingness to open up and trust, or their unwillingness to simply not do it. We have to think about these things. He prepares in the presence of our enemies. What does that mean? Well, as I've told you before, David is being pursued by his son and 10,000 people with weapons. That's not what he's talking about necessarily. There's an enemy. Men, listen to me for a sec. There's an enemy. And you're in his presence. Wednesday afternoon, Thursday morning, Saturday night. Oh, here's one on the business trip when you're all alone. What do you do in the presence of your enemies to overcome the temptation? You're already saying it this morning. It's already been told to you. It's already been preached from this pulpit. You raise a hallelujah. When the enemy is conditioned to understand that when temptation comes at your weakest point, when you're most exhausted, most frustrated, most beguiled by whatever is going on in your life, when you're most vulnerable and temptation comes, when the enemy is conditioned to understand that when that temptation comes, you immediately get into worship, the temptation will subside. All you have to do, I say all, all you have to do is be ready, on the ready, already prepared, as you go through your day, for the, the subtle, scheming, what about this, why don't you think about that, what about her, what about that, what about this, what about this loss of integrity, what about I was cheated over here. All you've got to do is be prepared to worship. When you raise a hallelujah, you raise a hallelujah. When you don't worship, you raise hell up. You elevate it. You become even more susceptible, even more vulnerable, even weaker than you even thought you were to begin with. When you raise a hallelujah, you don't raise hell. And, and this is the thing, it's so simple. I mean, here it comes again, the cycle, this is it. 
I'm going to do it again. I know myself. When you start exalting Christ, your temptations are minimized. If, if we could get young men and young women, old men and old women, to practice the weaponry of worship in the midst of temptation, even though you're in the presence of your enemy, they will flee. Your enemy will flee when you start to worship. I've told you this story before, before but, but, but it bears repeating. I, we were in a worship service singing of the blood of Christ, and a demoniac broke out and started manifesting these gy- physical gyrations and contortions of his body in the middle of the worship service in southern India. And everyone just backed up from him. And all, that, all the darkness wanted was the attention. All the darkness wanted was to distract people from worshiping. As they sing about the blood of Christ, and I'm thinking to myself, what a weak attempt. I got on that microphone and said, don't you, don't you stop singing about the blood of Christ. Well, the guy was set free in about 10 minutes. The darkness cannot stand worship. The darkness wants worship. So there's going to be worship. Now the question is, who's going to get it? Where is my worship going to go? To an idol, to the darkness, to a temptation, to a sin, to a cycle, to an identity that's rooted in darkness, or to Christ? Raise a hallelujah or raise hell. That's the way it works. David gives us that. You can't leave here today without having heard that. I hope you cannot unhear that. When we get, and I deal with men with habitual sin, I deal with this all the time, as do other people in here, counselors in this room this very minute, deal with this. When the idols come, when they slither into our minds, when they weaken us and break us down, when they set us up for failure, we see how small we are how big that temptation is. The bigger the temptation, the smaller Christ is in our own hearts and minds. In fact, he's actually dismissed, excused temporarily until we start raising the hallelujah. We start building some momentum. We start not just singing, not just words, not just thoughts when it starts to come from down here. A visceral worship, a meaningful worship, not the obligatory. The darkness knows the difference. Not the motions, not the rhetoric, not just the lyrics, the visceral, guttural, compassionate heart cry to the shepherd. Comes running for the sheep. You're going to worship. The question is who? You're going to worship. The question who you prepare a table in the presence of my enemies I walk into a restaurant sometimes like my wife and I weed out and we go and I was looking at a busboy the other night we were eating dinner and he was he was doing such a good job I mean he's so really conscientious putting the dishes up, washing the table off, putting the stuff back where it belongs. He was preparing a table for somebody who hadn't gotten there yet. 
who was going to walk through the door and either had a reservation or they're going to look at each other and go, yeah, let's eat here. The table was prepared for them. You see, this is your reality. Every day you live your life, you wake up, whatever time, you're a little groggy, but you get there, becomes clear. You wake up, have your coffee, and there's a table prepared for you. It's a 24-hour day. It's been set out. God bust it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That anger got bust right off the table. It's in the kitchen now, being washed by the blood of Christ. And there's a table there for you. It's a business meeting. It's an appointment. It's this, it's that. But it's, you just sit down, and the table was prepared by God for you to live out that day. It's a simple meal. It's a fulfilling meal. And it's in the presence of your enemies. He prepared a table before me. My table's different than your table. You have one for you and just you, prepared exactly for you. Where it needs to be, how high it needs to be, when it needs to be there, it's there for you. Sit at it in fellowship with him. It's personal. It's a me table. Don't sit at my table. My table's for me. Your table's for you. Now, we can sit together at the same table, but it's prepared specifically for you. Now, is that preparation for you to do the same thing you did yesterday out of rote, habitual, cyclical monotony of a schedule? And the, you, you don't need the Holy Spirit to lead you. You've got a calendar. What do you need the Holy Spirit for? It tells you exactly what you're going to do, when you're going to do it. And does it tell you how you're going to do it? Does it tell you with what passion you're going to do it? Does it tell you with what attentiveness you're going to have towards other people? Does it tell you how encouraging you're going to be to those other people that are going to sit at that table with you? Does it tell you specifically your countenance when you meet with those people? Does it tell you that you're going to pray with them or is it FB on the calendar? Is there a flexibility at your table on a daily basis that says, I am open to any and everything of you, God? And I'm going to raise a hallelujah, and I ain't going to raise no hell. How personalized is your table, or is it just another meal, another day, another ritual? In a spiritless, robotic, go-through-the-motions, try-to-make-it-to-the-holidays mentality. We have to be hungry at that table. More hungry than the enemy. More thirsty than the enemy. An enemy that's longing to take whatever he can from you. Minimize whatever he can from you. Put whatever religiosity he can in your life to make your life sterile mechanical, anything but intimate and personal and loving and kind and compassionate and merciful and graceful and patient and kind and joyous. In some churches, he doesn't have to do much. He's already got them going in a direction. They just do it themselves now. They listen to that voice. They tune it in. It's pretty frequent and it's pretty loud. I heard a testimony today of someone who went to a church and Finally decided to leave because they never heard anybody share the gospel. Didn't know what grace was. Started to write down words they didn't understand. Grace was one of them. Some, some, some enemies don't even need to sit down anymore. They, 
They got their table, and everybody sits at, at the enemy's table, and then the enemy goes off and gets another restaurant going. Is your head like that? Is your house like that? I hope not. He prepares a table before you, personally for you, in the presence of your enemies. The enemy is frustrated, jealous, covetous, and also defeated. You anoint my head with oil. Most people don't understand this verse. The word anoint is the Hebrew word masak in every instance in the Old Testament except this one. It, it means to, just like you would think, it means to anoint one and empower one to do more than one is capable of doing in and of themselves, without, but, they, but they're anointed because God's helping them. It is a sign of the Spirit, a sign of an empowerment, a giftedness to go beyond your own carnal self and deliver something of God from God without getting into God's way. That's anointed. This anointed is nothing like that whatsoever. It is deshanta in Hebrew. It means to make, here you go, to make fat. To fatten oneself. To make healthy. To make one fresh. Become prosperous. It's provision for victory. Even if it means confidence. Even if it means strength. Even if it means desire. Even if it means want to. It's an anointing that's, that comes from the ashes and it's placed on somebody. He says, you anoint my head with oil. Here's a man feeling thin, weak, vulnerable, chaste, run out of town, unloved, betrayed by his own son. He doesn't need God to do something through him that only God can do. He needs to get fat and confident again. He needs to get supplied with provision. He needs to stop being a wimp and start being a man. He needs God to touch him with an anointing that says, I'm healthy enough, I can handle it, I can get in the game now, I can see now, I'm not weak now, I'm not silent now, I'm not, I'm not rationalizing, I'm not denying, I'm not evading, I'm fat, I'm prosperous, I'm healthy, I'm ready, now you can do something with me. He has got so far down the ladder, God couldn't even anoint him with the spirit, he had to get, first get him fat. I run into people sometimes. And we use the Christianese lingo and jargon and this and Holy Spirit and blah, blah, blah. And you're looking at a person, they're so full of shame. They're so weak. They're, they lack such self-esteem. You ever met anybody like this? They don't need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Well, they do. They need to get fat. They need to get ready to even think about getting in the game, let alone get in the game and score points. They need to get fat. That's what David is. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you need to put on a few spiritual pounds because you're a little spiritual anemic. That's what we're talking about. I didn't mean to get up in your, yes, I did mean to get up in your business because that's my business. Anoint to make fat, fatten. My cup runneth over. My cup runneth over. There's a, there's a way of looking at this. 
church. There's a way of looking at this message. There's a way of looking at evangelical Christianity. There's a way of looking at however you want to do it. But I prefer to look at it through a biblical lens. And I find that God is not stingy at all. He doesn't really like meeting your needs. Let me say it again. He really doesn't like meeting your needs. He'll do it, but he doesn't want to. He'll meet your needs, but it's not in his character to do so. He'd much rather exceed your needs. He'd much rather your cup run over. He'd much rather go to a wedding in Cana and argue with his mother whether or not they're going to change water to wine and come up with 180 gallons. That's God. And he lavishes his love upon us because he's excessive and extravagant and he uses some little kid with five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 people and still has some left over just for show because he's basically almost borderline wasteful. And, and, and the problem we have is we look at him as though, oh, we're begging, we're praying, interceding, I'm fasting, I'm just crying out to God that he would just barely meet my needs so that I can live paycheck to paycheck. Just barely meet my needs. That I would be brash and arrogant and self-centered if I was to ask him to, to actually exceed that. <laughs> What are you talking about? He's been waiting on that request forever. Cup runneth over. Most believers sip. Do not be a sipper. I encourage you to be a guzzler when it comes to God. Just think. Think about it. If you want to be human about it, just rationalize it. Let's say the churches are half as full as they used to be. Let's say that the prayers are down 30%. Think of how much less God has to worry about. He's not being asked anything of. How much more interested is he being excessive? He's very interested in being excessive. Don't be a sipper. This business about the, the, the teacup with the pinky sticking out, and this is your Christianity, and your. God, I got no time for that. I don't know about you, but my God is huge. He has a cattle on a thousand hills, and that's not even getting started. He's looking, he's looking for, searching for, to and fro for churches who want to be excessive, lavishing love upon people and hope and prayer and calling on them to heal and, and be absolutely obnoxious. Other churches. Oh. Why are you in this church? Because you ran from that sipper church. Time to guzzle. I got an eight-cylinder truck now, and I took it down to Florida. I put it on Eco Drive, with the safe on the turns. I wasn't in the mountains. I'm I'm checking my gas mileage on this truck. I just got it. I'm checking my gas mileage, and I'm praying to God it doesn't say 14. 15, 16. It was up to 20. I'm like, and then I realized, yeah, 
What is your problem, dude? You bought a guzzler. You just, you went out and got a guzzler. Like, live with it. And why don't you be one yourself sometime? I'm asking God for great and mighty things which I do not know. I don't know what you're sipping on. But if you're in this church for any length of time, it's going to be impressed upon you the need to lean on God for great and mighty things. You know what the public gets from you? You know what the world gets from the church? Overflow. That's what they get. But out will flow out of you rivers of living water. They get the overflow. If there's no overflow, they get nothing. We just get our own thing, doing our own thing. Yeah, we're trying to make it the next Sunday. We'll put up with each other and get back in here and have a pep rally of some kind and move on. No, God wants you to guzzle. Guzzle, guzzle, guzzle. I want your spiritual gas mileage to get down to 12 miles a gallon because you're flooring it. You're living it. You're asking it. You're expecting, huh? Man, we are... We've got to get to where we, we have to guzzle, not sip. Lavish, extravagant abundance is his middle name. And he never runs out. Hallelujah. We've got to raise a hallelujah. We're going to be raising hell. Where are you in relationship to him? And is it worshipful? God has no agenda at all to ask you first what you've done. Oh, and I'll beat you to it. He's not asking you what you haven't done either. All he really wants to know is where are you in relationship to me? And if there's an inordinate amount of distance, come back next Sunday. We'll shorten it just a little bit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship and we'll close our service.